Welcome back, everybody. I am Paul. And I'm Jamie. And this is another episode of Criminally Disturbed. Special edition. Special double feature. So let me let me kind of explain to you, to our listeners, exactly how this came about. So for those listeners that haven't gone way back and listened to some of our very, very early beginning episodes about how we discuss us, about how we talk about us, they may not know what we do. Mm-hmm. So you work in the accounting department of a construction company. Yes. And I work for another construction company. Well, I actually had a project that was going on in an area of Arkansas. And, uh, you know, I'd like to, when I go into an area, I do projects all over uh, Louisiana. We live in Louisiana. And I've done a lot of projects in Louisiana. I've done a lot of projects in Texas. And, um, and I've done uh, several in Arkansas. And I like to get to know people and things like this everywhere I go. And I was getting to know some people in this area of Arkansas. And a conversation came up uh, about our podcast. And the guy was like, hey, you need to do a story about this. And I said, well, what's this about? You know, and he started telling me about this case. And I was like, oh, man, okay. So that was a while back. That was about, that was several months ago. And uh, I had been kind of doing some research here and there about it and that stuff. Well, lo and behold, we get an email from a listener. Now, I don't want to use the listener's name because the listener is actually, first of all, the listener did not give us permission to use his or her name. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's not that they didn't give us permission to use their name. We didn't ask because they we do didn't. have a background in law enforcement. They do. And we didn't feel that we needed to use their name. Correct. Yeah. That's right. And we're no way insinuating that, obviously, the case I'm doing, he has nothing to do with, because mine's from 1957. Right. Um, but Paul's case, he doesn't have anything to do with it either. It's just safety issues. Correct. I mean, because he does have a law enforcement background. Right. So, we're just going to leave that at that. Yeah. Okay. But, thank you for writing us and bringing these cases to our attention. Yes, thank you very much. And, uh, we, like we said, this episode is dedicated to you to you thank you for writing in and uh, but this is a double feature for everyone mm-hmm. the special part of this not only that it's a double feature and there's two cases but both of these cases happen in the same area years apart yeah so we are going to start with jamie's case go ahead baby my case is on Maud Crawford, which I had never heard of because I don't think I've ever been to Camden, Arkansas. Oh, and both of these are in Arkansas. I don't know if we've said that. Did no, we, we haven't that? said that yet. Okay. Well, these are both in Arkansas. In Camden, Arkansas. Yeah. Now, Camden, for those that don't know, is a small town. Actually, small. It's, it's about 10,000 people. It's uh about 38 40 minutes north of El Dorado Arkansas and there's not a lot there there is a bottling plant there right now what do they bottle it's Coca-Cola bottling plant there are other big companies there Lockheed Martin is there uh, in East Camden there's a small university there South Arkansas University Technical College is there Aerojet is there now Aerojet and Lockheed Martin and there's another uh, company that's there they actually are they do government contracting for missiles Mm. they build missiles for Mm. the government so for the military so uh, they're kind of way out in the woods and I know for a fact as you get close to Lockheed Martin you lose signal on your phone you may show four bars but you don't have any signal. <laughs> so <laughs> some of them some of that government scrambling. I, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say yay or nay on that, but um 
I do know that it is hard to send out a text message from around that area. So, anyway. All right. Go ahead. Okay. My sources, the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, the Eldorado News Times, and the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Newspapers.com let me down this week. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah, they did. You have to subscribe to the Eldorado Times. Yeah. Yep. So, Maud Robinson was born on June 22, 1891 in Greenville, Texas. She was the oldest of four children of John W. Jack Robinson and Ida Louise Fawcett Robinson. Okay. Her mother died when she was nine years old, and she was then raised by her grandmother, who operated a boarding house with her husband in Warren, Arkansas. In 1911, Maud Robinson graduated from Warren High School as valedictorian of her class. She attended the University of Arkansas for the years 1911 and 1912. On December 7, 1925, she married Clyde Falwell Crawford, a young man from a pioneer Camden family. They had no children. Okay. Maud Crawford began her career in 1916 as a stenographer at the Gone. I'm assuming this is Gone. It's G-A-U-G-H-A-N. Okay. I'm going to say Gone Law Firm in Camden. The firm was impressed with her skills and encouraged her study of the law. As the South Arkansas oil boom expanded in the 1920s, the firm needed experts in legal titles and mineral rights. So what she did, she didn't actually attend law school. She did what was called reading for the law. So she actually studied law books, and she went and took the bar exam. So in 1927, when she passed the bar exam, she made the top grade. Of those wow. that, yeah, that okay. took the exam at that time. Okay. And she was one of the first women in Arkansas to become an attorney. Nice. Yeah. Good for her. Maud was affectionately known in her community as Miss Maud. Miss Maud. So from here on out, she's Miss Maud. All right. Okay. Clyde served in World War One. When he returned, he had a nervous breakdown. Uh oh. So from then on, Miss Maud took care of him almost like a child, oh. but not in like a bad way. But mm. I, I took this to mean like kind of, you know, laid out his clothes and made sure he ate. You know what I'm saying? Kind of mother hand him. Okay. But, not, you know, not in a bad way. Right. So his job was he finished floors and he finished furniture. Okay. The law firm that she worked for gained additional prestige when, in 1939, former Congressman John L. McClellan became a partner. McClellan was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1942, and he, his name is going to come back up again, so All that's right. why that's in there. Okay. Miss Maud was active in civic affairs. She was the first woman elected to the Camden City Council, serving from 1940 to 1948. Wow. Okay. In 1942, she was the founder of the Arkansas Girls State, which is a program making it possible for high school girls to go to Little Rock for a week each year to learn how state government works. Hmm. And the way that happened was like two years before that, in 1940, Boys State was founded. Mm -hmm. So it was just Boys State. And Miss Maud was like, girls can benefit from learning right. about the government also. Yeah. So that's when Girl State was founded. Okay. Yeah. Good for her. Miss Maud served as one of the Girl State program's eight counselors every year from 1942 until her disappearance in 1957. She was elected president of every women's civic club for which she was eligible for in Camden. Wow. And she was a member of the Business and Professional Women's Club, the American Legion Auxiliary, the Pilot Club International, the which I guess was a sister club of the Rotary International, mm -hmm. 
1954, the Pilot Club named her Woman of the Year. Dang. Yeah. In 1955, Camden won an Achievement Award for Outstanding Community Improvement in the whole state of Arkansas. Dang. And Miss Maud was chosen to go to Little Rock to give a speech and accept the award on behalf of the community. That is awesome. I know. She was an awesome person. It sounds like it. And good for Camden, too. Yeah. Okay. So now we're on March 2nd, 1957. Okay. And this was when Miss Maud came up missing. Okay. So this is important what I'm fixing to tell you. Clyde. All of this is important. Yeah. <laughs> Clyde had a nightly pattern that rarely changed. Every night, he would drive his pickup truck downtown and park in front of the jewelry store. Then he would stand in front of the newsstand next to the jewelry store and talk to his friends. Okay. <laughs> Just. All right. Then he would walk two blocks from there to the Malco Theater and see a movie. And I didn't, I would think since he did this every night, the movie probably didn't change that much. So I guess he just seen the same movie all the time, but I don't know. Gone to see him a picture show. Yep. Okay. And after he saw the movie, he would return to the newsstand and socialize a little bit more with his friends. All right. Then he would drive to Carter's liquor store, which was two miles away, and watch the 10 o'clock news and drink a beer. At the... He watched the news at the liquor store. And drank a beer. Okay. And then he would arrive home around 1030 to 11. This was every night. Every, every night. night. Mm-hmm. Okay. So remember that. I'm going to remember that. Okay. So this night, Clyde's off doing what he always does. He's doing Clyde shit. He's doing Clyde shit. At 830 p.m., Miss Maud's cousin phoned her and talked with her for a little while. Everything seemed normal. Clyde returns home, usual time. The lights and the television were still on, and there was a pan of beans on the dining table that Miss Maud was shelling. She was shelling beans. But Miss Maud was gone. Her clothes were in the closet, so it's not like she bagged up some clothes and left. Her car was in the driveway, and her purse was in the living room. And her billfold still had $142 in it, so... That was a lot of money back then. That was a lot of money, and so nobody robbed her. Mm -hmm. Her dog, Dow, which was a Dalmatian, was unharmed and resting peacefully on the floor, which was weird because I'm going to tell you why. Dow was known to be vicious. Like, Dow didn't like anybody getting near Miss Maud. Like, she'd even attacked Clyde a couple of times. And so, wow. Yeah, and sometimes, and if anybody Googles and looks at the uh, this house, their house, it's still standing. There's people living in it. It's a gorgeous house. Is it? Yeah. Like, some of the upstairs rooms, they would rent them out from time to time. And, like, some of the people that stayed there even said the dog was vicious. You could not get near Miss Maud at all. The dog was very protective. So, for the dog to be resting peacefully. Like, you would think that if she was gone, like something had happened, that that dog would be pacing. Yeah. You know, worried. And how does somebody get close to Miss Maul? Right. Yeah. Without, you know, something happening. So, when When Miss Maul has not returned by 1 a.m., Clyde drove to local cafes and then passed homes of some of her friends to see if their lights were still on he flagged down two policemen to ask if there had been a car accident that might explain her absence which i don't know how because her, her vehicle car was, was at the house was at home yeah. but i mean he, I, I guess he was worried yeah. I, I mean i don't know at 2 a.m he drove to the police station and reported reported her missing the next day the police and local citizens began an extensive search There began a widely circulated rumor that alleged that her disappearance was payback by the mafia in retaliation for the widely publicized attacks in the hearing on organized crime led by Senator McClellan, who used to work at the law firm. Organized crime in Arkansas, okay, 
but no evidence ever surfaced to support that theory. Okay. So that was just a rumor. Okay. Yeah. It happened. I mean, organized crime in Arkansas yeah. happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I mean, Al Capone and, and yeah. all them, they, oh, yeah, they, they were, were regular hot springs. Hot springs yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Little Rock mm-hmm. and, and stuff. Yep. So two weeks after her disappearance, the local newspaper, the Camden News, reported that according to police chief G.B. Cole, the investigation was stalemated. Dang. Mm-hmm. Clyde died in 1969. Until his death, he had always looked for Miss Maud to come back. Oh, man. Yeah. Later that year, 1969, the probate court of Washita County declared Maud Crawford dead, a victim of foul play. Mm. But that's not where this story ends. Usually it is. Not this story. Okay. So, we're fast-forwarding to 1985. Oh, shit. Okay. This is where Beth Brickell comes in. Okay. Beth Brickell was actually raised in Camden, and she had moved to Los Angeles. So, in 1985, she was actually a filmmaker in Los Angeles, and she in Los Angeles, and she said, quote, my agent asked, what do you want to do next? She said, I told him the little bit I knew about the Maude Crawford mystery, and her agent thought it would make a good movie, and he told her to write a screenplay about it. She said, I didn't know enough about it, so I returned to my hometown to ask questions and begin writing a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Within a week, I learned that the case had never been properly investigated mm. and that people were afraid to talk about it. I had a journalism background and dropped everything in my life to stay on for 16 months to investigate the unsolved case. So from here on is stuff that she found out when she came back to investigate. Okay. Okay. Let's get it. So when she first gets there and sees that, obviously, it wasn't investigated the way it should have been, she first reached out to law enforcement. Mm Mm-hmm. She spoke to the sheriff. She didn't give the name, and she was told that all material had been thrown out by the previous sheriff. Why would you throw out the material? That's um, yeah, that's a that's yeah, that's a little no no. Yeah, the chief of police said that there had actually been a stack of info that was as tall as a piano, but it had all burned in a mysterious fire. Whoa okay that's a little sus too mm-hmm. so what ended up happening based of all based on her interviews and investigation there was an 18 article investigative series that was published on the front page of the arkansas democrat gazette mm-hmm. the series implicated a deceased arkansas state police commissioner oh shit by the name of Henry Meyer Mike Berg. He, we're going to call him Mike. And he's a douchebag. Oh, shit. Google a picture of him. And he's a dick with ears. <laughs> okay. Mike was a Camden multimillionaire businessman. At the time when Ma- Miss Mauld went missing, he was the richest man in town. He was appointed to the Arkansas State Police Commission in 1955 by Governor Orville E. Faubus. Mm-hmm. Mike served as a commissioner until shortly before his death in 1975. Okay. Now, uh, Brickell, I'll call her Brickell from here on out. All right. You know, she started investigating, doing her investigating in 1985, and she did say that she felt that if Mike had still been alive, when she started doing her investigation, she probably wouldn't have gotten as far as she did. Okay. So, and even then, it was still sketchy. Yeah. Okay. So, this is how Mike comes into this. Miss Maud was best friends with Rose Berg. They actually lived across the street from each other. Okay. Miss Maud was also the attorney for Rose and her husband, Henry. 
before Henry died in 1950, Miss Maud drew up his will. Mm-hmm. 25% of his estate went to his nephew, Mike, and 75% went to Rose. And so then Miss Maud drew up Rose's will. In Rose's will, that 75% that Henry left her, she left to three of her nieces on her side of the family. Mm, okay. And that pissed off Mike because he's like, that should be going to me because it was my uncle that left that to her. Yeah. So at the time when Miss Maud went missing, Rose Berg had Alzheimer's. Miss Maud had been appointed Rose's personal guardian by the court when Rose was declared incompetent. Really? Rose had an estate with a large timber tract in Hempstead County near Hope. This is in Arkansas, for those that don't know. Mm -hmm. Mike worked with two of his employees to get a signature from Rose and take her land. What? Because he wanted to sell the timber. The timber. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Mike promised a portion of the profits to Hugh Mosley, who was a timber man and one of those employees. Ooh. Hugh never received his portion, so Hugh went to Miss Maud and wanted her to help him get what he felt that Mike owed him. So Dang. then Miss Maud found out what was going on. Oh. And when she found this out, this information would have put Mike Berg in prison and invalidated those deeds because right. they were gotten fraudulently. So Miss Maud went to Mike's office and confronted him. When she left, a witness said that Mike said, quote, I wish that goddamn bitch was dead. Whoa. Talking about Miss Maud. Well, Miss Maud disappeared six weeks later. Sus. Yeah. So when Brickell was doing her investigations in 1985, two fraudulent deeds were located in the Hempstead County Courthouse. A first deed transferred large timber assets from Roseburg to Hugh Mosley, who was that timber man. On that same day, a second deed transferred the same assets from Mosley to Mike Berg. Mm. So there's truth to that story. Dang. Mm. So you remember I said that Rose uh, Berg had was going to leave that 75% to those three nieces. Yeah. Well, Miss Brickell talked to those three nieces, and they sh- said shortly before Miss Maul disappeared, she had actually told them she had the goods on Mike Berg, and that upon her retirement, because she was actually fixing to retire, mm-hmm. she intended to bring a lawsuit against him that would expose a pattern of fraudulent deeds that were designed to thwart Roseburg's will. Because you remember Miss Maud written up rose's will yeah in addition to the timber deeds that i just spoke of earlier deeds have been discovered at the washita county courthouse transferring assets over a period of years from roseburg to mike one deed that was eight pages in length with a shaky roseburg signature conveyed to mike twenty-one thousand two hundred and eleven acres of timberland in 15 counties damn as well as 62 city properties and an estimated 150 producing oil royalties oh shit oh my god and miss maud had found out about all that holy shit and when miss maud disappeared roseburg's will disappeared oh no Mike Berg succeeded in getting all of Roseburg's estate. No. In a settlement one year after Miss Maud's disappearance, Mike Berg granted $187,000 to each of Roseburg's three nieces in exchange for a relinquishment of all claims to their aunt's estate. And they agreed? They agreed probably just to be to be done, done with, with them it. yeah that and hell he could have killed them god man that sucks yeah 
Damn. So tell me Mike Berg ain't had some shit to do with it. Oh, he did it. I, I mean, it it looks like a duck. Yeah. And it walks like a duck. And it quacks like a duck. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking duck. Yeah. So Miss Burkell received new information from Otis A. Henley, who was the original state police detective on the case. He told Miss Brickell that he was assigned to the case the day after Miss Maul disappeared and that he found a clue and other evidence regarding the disappearance. According to Henley, he reported to the captain of the State Police Criminal Investigation Division, who was Alan R. Templeton, that his findings pointed to State Police Commissioner Mike Berg. Henley said, quote, I found a lead and reported it to Little Rock. They told me to bring all my notes and everything I had on it and come up there. I did. Then they told me to leave everything I had on the lead and they'd get back to me. When they did, they told me, no way. There's too much money involved and you don't have enough to go on. The next time I went back up there and looked in the file, all my notes and everything about the lead had disappeared. He had it. He had it. And he was taken off the case. He had it. And you want to know what his lead was? What? He had additional information from neighbor Sam Redding and a nurse on duty across the street from the Crawford house, which might not have been Roseburg's house. Maybe it was diagonal. Sam Redding said that he heard a car come up the Crawford driveway and leave. And he remarked, Clyde's coming in early tonight. Mm. which I never said what time it was and I guess it would would have been in the original notes that were left in Little Rock right, that were right. destroyed Yeah, but that's why I was making such a point of yeah. Clyde having the same schedule every night so obviously this car came at a different time and the nurse said that she actually looked out the window and saw a big black shiny car with lots of chrome of it leave the Crawford home so Henley actually was able to track down the car. Guess who on the car? No. Mike Berg? No. Oh, but Al Capone? Clo- but, cl- <laughs> 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 but close. Okay. It was Jack Doris who was Mike Berg's bodyguard. No. Come on. He had a bodyguard? He had a bodyguard. What the hell? I know. What the hell? Like, what the hell you need a bodyguard for? Okay. Another thing, you would have thought that the FBI would have been involved, right? At least the Pinkertons. Something. Somebody. Scotland Yard or somebody. Well, it was expected that the FBI would become involved in Miss Mauds because of Senator McClellan. Sure. Yeah. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover received all reports regarding the case. Immediately after the disappearance, the Little Rock FBI regional office sent two additional agents to Camden to join resident FBI agent Ralph D. Scott in anticipation of participation. That's a lot. Yeah. On March 5th, three days after Miss Maud's disappearance, Hoover instructed the Little Rock office to conduct no active investigation but to maintain close liaison to ascertain developments. And it's like, that's weird. Just basically monitor the situation to see if anything develops. If it develops, then I guess they're going to jump back into it. Well, the reason was there was no evidence of any abduction or foul play. Okay, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. So when that was issued, Clyde was trying to reach out to McClellan to ask him to get the FBI involved. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, well, you know, you can reach out to the FBI and be like, hey. Yeah. And you know, because you did know Miss Maud. You worked with her. Right. And a couple of Maud's cousins also reached out to McClellan, like, hey, can you please get the FBI involved? McClellan did call the FBI, and this was when uh, Burkell actually, uh, I forgot how she found this evidence, but um, she did find some of these notes, and it said that when he actually did reach out to the FBI, he really showed no interest in getting the FBI involved. Really? Yeah. But I'm going to tell you why. Okay. And let you make up your own opinion. All right. 
even local police officers said that they had reached out to the FBI. They're like, look, we we, we need help mm-hmm. with this investigation. Right. And still, they received no FBI assistance. And it's like, y'all had police officers reaching out too. What is the deal? I mean, Camden, I don't even know what kind of a police force that they had. This is probably all being handled by Washita County, you know, sheriff. Mm-hmm and stuff and even then i mean they're probably not a huge police force right and so they they probably need the help here yeah you know so why is the state not jumping in on this exactly well mcclellan his closest friend and primary political contact was his former law partner thomas gone mm-hmm. or the gone law firm mm-hmm. gone was also the personal attorney and advisor of Mike Berg. Oh, my God. Man, come on. This little dick with the ears just mm. has hands everywhere. God, oh, dude's just got people in his pocket mm-hmm. everywhere. I'm telling you, he had something to do with it. That's my opinion. That's just my opinion. Mm. Okay, so to kind of wrap this up, if he did it, if he had something to do with it, which, in my opinion, he does, where is she? Because they oh, still, they don't know. No, well, it's been said, but nobody is actually nobody in authority has actually went and looked where it's been said that she could be. A former employee actually told Brickell that they, being the former employee, filled in a well with concrete. On the night that Miss Maud disappeared. On the night that she disappeared. Do you want to know where this well is located? Where? On Mike Berg's property. Come on now. I mean, I know you got to get a warrant and everything to go on to somebody's property. And, but but I you mean, have this person telling you, yeah, hey, I yeah. did this. I think it's possible that this is why I did this. You, yeah, but I mean, even if you don't know what's in the bottom of the well, you're just pouring concrete in it. You're doing it at night? Yeah. I mean, I know we pour concrete in the, you know, when it's hot outside, we do it early in the morning. But, I mean, they weren't going to finish this concrete. You do it early in the morning so you have time during the day to finish it before it gets super hot. Right. So, I mean, it's like, what you know, you're pouring concrete into a hole. At night. At night. Because you're hiding something. You're hiding something. Right. That's stupid. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. Yep. So, to wrap this up, Beth Brickell. Yeah. So, she's actually written four books. Okay. And since this is a double feature, obviously, I didn't get to go in as much detail with this as I normally would. Okay. But for anybody that wants to go into more detail, find out more about it. The first book she wrote was A Disappearance of Maud Crawford. Uh, like I said, there was an 18-article series that was post that was uh, printed in the Arkansas uh, Democrat Gazette. Well, she took all of these and she actually put them, compiled them into a book, which was The Disappearance of Maud Crawford. Mm-hmm. Well, then she was like, well, I have all these notes from where I interviewed people for this investigation. So she took all of the interviews and she released a second book called In Their Own Voice, Interviews from the Maude Crawford Investigation. Mm -hmm. And then she released a third book, Most Credible Conclusions from the Maude Crawford Interviews. And finally, she just released this fourth book, Solving the Maude Crawford Puzzle. And that's her, she said that's going to be her final book. And the way I know that was um, my final source, I'll say now, I did find a YouTube video where she was at a um, library up in Ar- Arkansas promoting the Solving the Maud Crawford Puzzle Book, mm-hmm. and she was answering questions and stuff. So yeah. I did get some of the info from that okay. um, interview. So, yeah. So if you want to do a deeper dive into this case, I do suggest y'all get her books. Very good. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting case. And yeah, that. I wish they would just go find her body. I wish they would. Now, is he dead? 
or uh, Mike Burt. Yeah, he died in 1975. That's right. You did say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, God, I mean, he had to have been the one. Oh, he had to have been the one. That is a shady fucker right there. That is. Going to be stealing from that woman with Alzheimer's. I know. That's Greedy. ridiculous. That is ridiculous. But in my eyes, there's no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's crazy. Yeah, they need to go find her remains so they can lay her next to Clyde. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's sad. Wow. Okay. And that was the story of Miss Maud. Miss Maud. Well, I hope that the story that I have is as interesting as yours. Uh, I had to pop a top. Oh, that's good. Well, the story I have for you also comes to us from Camden, Arkansas. What were they doing up there? They were like wilding. Well, I mean, look, and Camden is Camden, East Camden, uh, just south of there, smack over um very pretty country mm-hmm. i mean very pretty it's surrounded by woods i mean it's surrounded by just you know wooded just open country not open but country you know and very nice people spend a lot of time up there of course and and stuff and so very nice people really enjoyed it up there it's good it's a good area mm-hmm. very nice so I'm not going to say that they were wilding. It's just that you know, just you know, just as well as I do that there are bad apples everywhere, <laughs> right? You know, so we're going to talk about the tragic story of Reese Stone. Now, I had I actually watched a documentary, I guess, of uh, the video that i watched on this is actually murder in the heartland and affair with murder and uh other sources that i used were monstersandcritics.com the cinemaholic.com and caselaw.com which caselaw actually i was able to see the court documents and the uh, appeals and things like that so hope that uh that i do the story justice now reese stone uh, the, her name her name reese it's actually spelled r-u-i-z which i before i heard somebody say it i actually was saying ruiz that's but, what i would have thought it was yeah but I, they actually said reese stone that's pretty cool yeah it actually is she was um around this time which was uh june of 2003 she was about 47 years old she's about five foot four she's a blonde haired lady she worked for the local coca-cola bottling plant she was a salesperson Uh, she would go and take she drove a company vehicle which was one of the minivans Mm -hmm. the white minivans with the logos and stuff on the side she would go to the convenience stores and the grocery stores and things and she would take their orders on what they needed and then take that back to the warehouse and then their drivers would load their trucks and then take the stuff to the to those customers and things at this time uh reese was the only woman working in the warehouse Mm -hmm. she expected all of her delivery drivers to treat her customers with respect when they were making the deliveries she was described as outgoing and a free spirit. Reese had just lost her mother and sister, and her husband had explained to police that uh, his wife had been suffering from depression lately because of, possibly because of this, and uh, had been prescribed medication, which she had recently and abruptly stopped taking. Oh. The medication was causing her to gain weight, and she did not like that. So, on June the 23rd, I believe is when it was, uh, the dates are kind of, it said that on the documentary, the 22nd, but then they said that was a Monday. Well, the, I look back on the calendar, the 22nd was actually a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, I'm going to say that it was on the 23rd. 
Jane Stone, which is her husband, and their two teenage children uh, went into the police station. And they went in that night, or around 7-ish, I believe, to report her missing. Oh. Uh, she had not returned home from work that day, and that was not like her. Also, her van was missing. That's not good. No. Now, on Monday morning, uh, James had state, uh, stated that Reese had woken up uh, feeling sick to her stomach and was even throwing up. But Reese had told him that she had a very important meeting to go to that day, and uh, she she just she had to go into work. You know, uh, the difference. One of the things that James had told police about her van and identifying Mark was that she had a bumper sticker on her back bumper that said, I love my cat. And it had, instead of love, it had a heart, you know, I heart my cat. I love my cat too. I don't like that thing. (laughs) I want to choke her sometimes, but I still love her. So that Monday, she leaves, she goes to work. The day goes on normally for everyone else anyway. And around 5.30 p.m., a co-worker notices Reese getting into her company van, assumingly to go home. Mm-hmm. Police uh, question James and ask if, if her being out late is normal. And uh, he says, no, it's not. She usually, when she leaves work, she comes home, you know. She's got a family, two kids. Right. Know. Now, as you well know, and, and we've talked about this before and maybe some other cases, and we've heard it on some documentaries and things, the big thing about small towns... Everybody is, knows everybody? Is rumors. Oh, everybody, that too. Everybody <laughs> knowing everybody, talking and, and things, rumors. Yeah. Well... Rumors can be big, or they can be small, but here they are very plentiful. Oh, God. And in the small town of Camden, the rumors were flying. Uh, They were flying around like the northern mockingbird. There were rumors of past allegations of extramarital relationships with bottling company co-workers. Uh Uh-oh. Police quickly heard the name of a man that Reese allegedly had a close personal relationship with, Mr. John Yarborough. These rumors describe times when Yarborough's wife would be gone and Reese's van would be parked at his house. Uh Uh-oh. But the rumors didn't stop there. The gossip also described a relationship with another co-worker, one of the other salespersons. Now, on June the 30th of 2003, about 4 p.m., seven days since Reese was reported missing, Mr. Jimmy Dean Mosley, he was raised in Camden. He just made me think of, like, sausage. Jimmy Dean. Jimmy Dean, (laughs) yeah. Um, This is the guy in the video. Oh, okay. (laughs) This is him. (laughs) We learned a lot from him. Oh yeah, he he uh, showed us the definite showed us the definition of hoarding. He did. So, um, walking through the woods just outside of the city limits, he found the van. Oh, it was backed up into the woods. He walks up to it, peers in, and sees a big purse in the passenger seat. Knowing that something is not right. Yeah, because a woman ain't gonna leave her purse. Hell no. Mr. Mosley leaves to go to contact the police. Actually, he goes to his brother's house. Um, which, by the way, his brother's name is Billy Ray. And then they come back to the van uh-huh. on his three-wheeler. And then they go back and they call the police. Okay. So uh, that's what's said in the uh, in the documentary. But they, they ended up they didn't touch anything yeah they just you know police arrived to the scene and rope it off for from the public uh they noticed right near the van that there's an abundance of trash scattered outside 
mm-hmm. uh, which includes cans, beer bottles, beer cans, cups, you know, just trash. Crime scene investigators find a broken necklace with a letter R charm on the ground, Uh-oh. an earring, and a pager. They also found a pair of red shoes, but the shoes were not found together. They were far apart, which was a telling clue to investigators. Like maybe somebody was drugged and they came off? Or- mm. Inside the van, they found her sunglasses, which were uh, still on the dash. Uh, her purse, like I said, was in the passenger seat. The purse still had her wallet, Uh-oh. which still had her cash in it. Oh. Uh, the purse also had a full pack of cigarettes left in it. Now, I didn't type this in, but in the video, um, the I think it was the it was the DA, the assistant DA, Mister Greg Parrish, was telling the story of what they were seeing there, and he said that one of the crime scene investigators was actually a two pack a day smoker, mm-hmm. and he uh, actually when they found the cigarettes. Yeah, he said the guy turned and said, uh, yeah, she didn't just walk away from here. She would not leave her cigarettes. Exactly. So like, that's true, too. I'm like, hey, that's a clue. That is a clue. So I was like, okay. One thing that vest- investigators did not find in the van was Reese herself. So investigators are tasked with figuring out if this if she staged her disappearance, if she was abducted, if something more had happened and she was still in the area, that was the mystery. Well, you know, she would have staged her disappearance. She probably would have took the cigarettes with her. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. You're probably right. The area where the van was found was split. Now, this was uh, between two or three. I'm not I wasn't really sure about this. It's either two or three remote wooded properties, mm-hmm. okay? It's either where three properties come together or two properties, uh, two properties where the property line is or something like that, but mainly we're going to focus on two properties. The van was found where, where two of these properties meet. One property was owned by Reese's friend and co-worker, Alan Bass. The other was owned by Reese's other co-worker and past lover, John Yarbrough. At this point, police bring in John for questioning. John says that his affair with Reese was not only brief, but happened years before. He explains that they had agreed to break it off and remain friends. Police asked John what the last contact he had with Reese was, and he described it basically like this. In his words, on that Monday, the day Reese went missing, uh, Reese pays John. Upon calling her back, John found that Reese wanted him to meet her at the next customer stop. There, he noticed that she was visually shaken about something, and he questioned her about it. She explained that she had been sick that morning and believed it to be morning sickness and that she was pregnant. Oh. And that her husband was not the father. Oh. So, that was pretty much the last contact that he had with her. So... Police also spoke with management at the company from upper management down. What they learned is that Reese had some issues with another co-worker by the name of Jason Wooten. Some of her complaints involved him being physical with her. However, Jason had made some complaints himself about Reese, stating that she had been constantly calling and emailing him, basically harassing him. This place was toxic. Isn't it, though? Yes. It's like a high school. Oh, my God. That's what I was thinking. Wow. Jason Wooten is brought in for questioning. When asked about all the complaints between him and Reese, uh, Jason explained that they had actually put aside their differences and reconciled. 
he explained that he had last seen Reese at about 4.30 that, that Monday. He did tell police that the two were in a romantic relationship, but that it was Reese that was pursuing him. Hey. He told police that once he saw her around 4.30, he went inside, finished his paperwork, and went home. Once at home, Jason wanted to reward his daughter for her good grades at school, so he took her to the local department store. Police are able to obtain department store camera footage showing Jason Wooten and his daughter inside the store at the time he says. Police bring in James Stone for another round of questioning. By now, alleged affairs are surfacing. So police are now looking at the possible quote, scorned husband, motive for murder. James tells police that he did know about the complaints filed against his wife by uh, by Jason Wooten for harassment, but had confronted Reese and point blank asked her if there was anything going on with Jason. She denied any affair, and James believed his wife. But did he? So I'm going to stop right there. So now you've heard from John, you've heard from Jason, and you've heard from James. James Stone. Did you notice all their names begin with a J? Yeah, I know. So you've heard from James Stone, you've heard from Jason Wooten, and you've heard from John Yarborough. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jason and John are boyfriends or past lovers, whatever you want to call them, and James is the husband. What's your gut telling you here? Right. Honestly, right now, I'm thinking the husband and trying to pin it on the past lover that remained friends with her. Okay. All right. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. I could be wrong. Okay. It's happened before. Not often, but. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, Police want to get the two men behind the affairs with Reese strapped into the polygraph chair. Both Jason Wooten and John Yarborough agree to take a polygraph exam. Okay. As they are hooking up Mr. Yarborough, he explains that he has had past heart issues. The polygraph examiner requires something from his cardiologist, so John's exam is postponed, pending documents from the doctor. Jason Wooten shows up for his exam early, about 30 minutes early. But he doesn't come into the building. Police say that he just sits in his car and just stares for about 30 minutes. That's creepy. He then comes into the building where he is observed by police as being very nervous acting. Well, I would be too, though. I think I would be too, because if I'm innocent, I think I'd be shaken. Because, you know, sometimes they misread those. Sometimes they do. Yeah. Yeah. Jason is led into the room where the polygraph machine is and is hooked up. One of the questions asked, quote, were you and Reese having an affair? Jason answered, yes. The examiner determined that this was the truth. When asked if he had anything to do with Reese's disappearance, Jason said, no. The examiner determined that This was a lie. Oh, shit. Other questions followed, but Jason failed his polygraph test. Oh, no. In terms of telling the truth about what happened to Reese, he failed. Oh, so I was wrong. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) He asked if he could go outside and smoke, and so I guess the polygraph examiner did, too the interrogator or whatever and the while outside the polygraph examiner or reader or whoever the interrogator said hey you know you failed that test right and he's like really he says look if you had anything you might just want to go ahead and come clean you know so anyway they go back inside police tell them of course and they start back with their interrogation at this point, Jason knows that he cannot hide anything any longer. Yeah. Jason Wooten confesses to the police <gasps> on July the 1st, 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So this was current boyfriend or this is a, this is current boyfriend. Ew. Yeah. Okay. According to Jason's taped confession, his videotaped confession, he pulls up to the gate at work where he is met by Reese. She tells him that she wants to meet him off-site somewhere, and after the location is given, they meet up in that very remote wooded area. Once there, they started a conversation where Reese told Jason about her throwing up that morning and that she thought she was pregnant, apparently with his child. Oh. His reaction was that this news was not good because he had a wife and kids. Jason claims that Reese responded with, we can get rid of them. Whoa, wait, what? Uh-huh. This is him telling the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Jason takes this as a threat to his kids and wife and tells interrogators, quote, not my damn kids. Jason says that he then grabbed her by the neck mm. and started hitting her in the head and neck. He says he also started to kick her. He said he was yelling and screaming. Jason finds a pipe on the ground and picks it up and starts hitting her all over. Mm. Jason has beaten Reese to death in the middle of some remote woods in Camden, Arkansas. He then loads her lifeless body up into the back of his truck and covers it with some steel mesh, which is welded wire mesh that you put in like a concrete slab. Mm Mm-hmm and drives to another remote area and dumps her there. He covers her remains up with a steel and some brush and leaves her there. However, Jason does claim that the attack on Reese is not premeditated. He claims that he snapped when she threatens his family. I don't think she threatened his family. You don't think so? No. Now... I told you that I went to find his court documents. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is the story according to the court documents. Okay. The appellant, which is the appellant in this document, is Jason. Right. Okay. According to the appellant, he met Miss Stone, and in the course of the conversation that Miss Stone threatened his, quote, damned kids and wife, End quote. He alleged Miss Stone grabbed him by the shirt and said, quote, We'll do it my way. End quote. Appellant then described how he grabbed Miss Stone around her throat with his right arm, how he was yelling at her and hitting her with his hand in the head and neck with her fighting him. He then explained that he stood up and started kicking her repeatedly even though she was no longer fighting him. Appellant further stated that he picked up a pipe that happened to be lying there next to him and started hitting her in the back, in the neck, and in the head, even though she was completely unresponsive at, the, at that point. Appellant then confessed that he put her in the back of his truck, covered her with some steel mesh, and drove away from the scene. He drove the body to another location, backed up the truck, took the body out, covered her with steel and sticks, threw the pipe away at the river bridge, went to the car wash, and washed massive amounts of blood out of the truck, and went home where wrestling was on TV. That was in the court documents. That is so fucked up. It is. That is fucked up. That you can just do all that and just go on home. Oh, I'm going to go watch wrestling now. Let's see. This is 2003. I'm going to go home and watch some Stone Cold. Wow. Yep. I'm serious. This is, this is bullshit. Yeah. Now, look. This is his story. She's not here to tell her story. Right. Okay? We don't know if she said those things. I, I'm, in my opinion, I don't think she said those things. If she threatened anything... I would think it would have probably just would have been, I'll tell your wife. And that was probably, probably about so. it. Probably so. I can end that for you. I'll tell your wife. She'll divorce you. Right. And we can be together. Or you're just going to pay child support. Blah, blah, blah. It was probably just the child support because did she really want to be with him? Because from all the pre- other previous affairs, she never left her husband. She didn't. 
So it's not like she... There was a rumor that her husband knew about the affairs, but he never really said that he did. Right, but it's, it really looked like she never really had any intention of ever leaving her husband, so... I don't know. I'm yeah. just saying that she's not here to say... Right. That what she said, what she didn't say, so... I just don't is, think she said what he says she said. This is probably him trying to get off a of first-degree murder. Oh, yeah. You know he's, what I'm saying? He's trying to limit his guilt or whatever. Oh, yeah. Police now have Jason's confession, and they ask him if he would take them to where he placed her body. He agreed and led police to a very rural area about 25 minutes outside of the city limits of Camden, Arkansas. Now, this is Arkansas mm-hmm. in June. Ooh. It is hot. It is humid. Mm. Once they arrive at the location, police and investigators notice the odor of decomposition. Mm. Jason leads them to the pile of debris that is covering the body of Reese Stone. The assistant DA, Greg Parrish, describes the body as very badly decomposed Mm -hmm. to a point that they couldn't figure out if it had been set on fire or it was just decomposing. That's how bad it was. It wasn't until the trial before Everyone was made aware of the extent of brutality Reese had suffered. Mm -hmm. The medical examiner took the stand to testify to the findings. Both cheekbones were crushed. Oh, my gosh. Her larynx was crushed. She had multiple skull fractures. Mm. Other testimony established, and this comes from the court documents, other testimony established that appellant's beating of Miss Stone essentially destroyed her head and face. That's horrible. That's a crime of passion. Oh, yeah. I mean, why would you... They even said in the court documents that by the time that he picked up that pipe, she was unresponsive. Right. She was no longer a threat. Yeah. Oh, he intended to kill her. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. On April the 15th of 2004, Alan Jason Wooten was convicted of first-degree murder. Oh, that's awesome. And abuse of a corpse mm-hmm. by a jury. On the same day, he was sentenced to 40 years for the murder and six years for the abuse of corpse charge. Jason is serving his prison sentence at the Wrightsville unit in Wrightsville, Arkansas, which is just south of Little Rock. Mm, That is horrible. That was in 2004, so in 2050. So he messed up her kids' lives, her husband's life, his kids' lives. His wife. Didn't he have a daughter? He was married. Yeah, but didn't he have kids? Yeah, yeah, he had kids. Yeah, he, he had a daughter. The, yeah. He messed up her life. Yep. Yeah. Wow. He messed up a lot of lives just, you know, because he, didn't, he, like you say, didn't want to pay child support or, you know, just because he couldn't keep his around. dick in his pants. Well, I was going to say that, but, you know, but yeah, I mean, just because he was messing around with mm-hmm. a coworker. And look, it said that there was other infidelities, but I'm not going to kick this woman while she's down. No. I mean, you know what I'm saying? No, because she didn't deserve all that. She did not she deserve did not. that. Yeah. She didn't deserve to die. No. I mean, there there was no sense in that. Mm-mm. That was brutal. That was. And just not necessary at all. And the same thing needs to happen to him. Well, it it probably did. Because there was a lot of speculation of, was she pregnant? Was she not pregnant? You know, obviously the popular opinion was that she was pregnant, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that when he got in there, I'm sure he got something. Yeah. So, anyway, he's he's just south of Little Rock in prison. And, I mean, my thing is, is you know, this shit happens. People... It, the whole co-worker thing especially at 
you know, plants and things like this, shit happens. Yeah. Just don't do this shit. Right. That's you won't run into things like this. Mm-hmm. Just don't do this shit. You know, if you've got a wife and children, live your life. If you're unhappy, leave it. Right. Leave it the right way. If you want to do some shit like this, leave what you got and go on about your business and let them go on and and have their own life. Don't ruin it like this guy did. Right. So And ruin all kind of families. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He ruined all kinds of families. Mm. So That's horrible. That's the story of Reese Stone Mm. and Maude Crawford, both from Camden, Arkansas. Two sad stories. Two very sad stories. Very sad. Golly. So uh, we hope that uh, you guys enjoyed the double feature, the double feature with a twist. And we want to thank our listener again that Absolutely. emailed us. Dedicated to you. We loved doing the research on both of these stories. Yes. And uh, for all of the other listeners out there, we uh, encourage you guys to send in those stories. Yeah, send in. This is proof that uh, we do read our emails. We do read our emails. And uh, we will do a, a story. Uh, you know, we we listen to you guys, and uh, we love you guys. That's right. And we love you all. We love all of you guys, and uh, we definitely want to keep interacting with you. We hope that you guys uh, continue to listen. Reach out to us. Our email address is seeddisturbedpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, keep keep your eyes open for those TikTok videos. By this time, we hope that everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hope that you guys were able to get together with your families. If you like your families. If you like your families, that's right. <laughs> And uh, got full on that food, whatever you had, either the traditional Thanksgiving dinner or if you had steaks or shrimp gumbo, gumbo, whatever you had. Got to watch the foosball. Got to watch the football games. Hope that your team, if you have a team, hope that they won. If they didn't, better luck next week. I hope our team wins. I hope they do too. Go Cowboys. So stay tuned for future episodes reach out to us and give us some ideas yeah so we'll be waiting i'm paul and i'm jamie and please join us next time and remember to stay disturbed bye bye